Well, good morning, Valley Free Church. It's good to be in your living rooms once again as we continue our shelter-in-place mode and uh, trust and pray that the Lord is, is evident in your lives these days and, and evident in your homes, and I trust that, that um, His peace and, and um, assurance is, is uh, part, of, part of what you're experiencing these days. So I'm looking forward to uh, the word of the Lord this morning, and uh, as Peter leads us through the first chapter of his letter, 1 Peter, we come to the idea of holiness, and um, I'm, I'm looking forward to that topic this morning, as, as serious as it is. So let, let's, let's pray, and we'll dive right in. Lord Jesus, Peter calls us today, as we, as we open up your word to 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter calls us to, to be holy as you are holy. And uh, that is a, a, a huge, very serious topic for us to cover today and very important, very foundational, foundational for us. So I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would open the eyes of our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our ears to hear you. And um, Lord Jesus, find us not only willing to hear, but willing to take action and willing to align our lives according to your word and your truth for us today. So open up your word to us as we begin. We dedicate this time to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So in a recent conversation with a group of friends, um, we were discussing the current crisis and the shelter-in-place order and, and all the frustration and discouragements that come from, from all of that. And I know you know what I'm talking about this week. Um, and at the end of our conversation, the, the soon return of the Lord, uh, called the rapture, came up. It came up in that context. And sometimes with a, with a bit of humor and sometimes with a bit of seriousness, but we discussed our thoughts concerning the Lord's return, the Lord's removing us from this scene and, and kidnapping us in, into heaven as we believe is the next event on the prophetic time clock. Some joked that they didn't want to see, they didn't want to leave until they could see a favorite site or go to a favorite place. And some remembered not wanting to, the rapture to come until they got married and enjoyed a marriage relationship. Others were concerned for relatives who were not yet Christians, and others, well, they wondered what would happen to pets or property. And I'm thinking, as we think those things through, as we talk about the Lord's soon return, I'm thinking that those kinds of questions, those kinds of thoughts or concerns are fairly normal when it comes to that topic, when it comes to our, our quick exit into eternity. But, and this was kind of the conclusion of our group as we discussed these things, these concerns kind of reflect negatively on us for two reasons. One, it means that we still have one foot firmly planted in the world around us. We don't want to let go of the pleasures of life, even with the promises of eternity. And second, we don't understand, I don't know that we even comprehend what God has for us on the other side. If we could grasp the depth of the beauty if we could grasp the presence of God and the abundance of life in every aspect that awaits for us in heaven, we wouldn't hesitate for a moment to anticipate his soon return and our escape. If only we knew what heaven holds for us. In the recently released film, the Before the Wrath, the celebration of a Galilean wedding is illustrated uh, is used as an illustration as a, as a, for the Lord's return. The correlation of the wedding traditions and the biblical narrative of the rapture of the church is, is amazing. And one of the scenes 
uh, in the film that's, that's depicted is the nighttime scene in which the father wakes up the, 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 the groom. He, he, the father decides that it's time for the groom to go get his bride. As you know, that's the tradition in a Galilean wedding. He wakes up the groom and he tells him, go and get your bride. And what struck me as they played out this scene in the movie with the father waking up and, and going and tapping his shoulder, the shoulder of his son and saying, it's time to go, it struck me that we don't comprehend the joy of the father. We don't comprehend the joy of the heavenly father in, in having us, the church, the followers of Christ, the bride of Christ, we don't comprehend his joy in having us join him in his eternal kingdom. He can't wait. He anticipates our coming to him. We look at heaven from our own point of view in these kinds of conversations, and we never stop to consider the absolute joy of the Father in finally sending his son to get his bride, and that's us. If only we knew the joy and the anticipation that God has uh, with our entering into his kingdom, into his presence. If only we knew. So we can make a long list of things that we need to know more about God. But let me add one more thing to our discussion today. Part of our national conversation these days concerning the, it concerns the number of people who have, who have died as a result of the coronavirus. And like it or not, death is a topic of conversation. And as much as we want to shy away from that conversation, it's still there in the headlines of the day. So a natural question comes in those moments as we ponder eternity, as we ponder the passing of a soul. And that question is this, do you think our loved one is in heaven? It comes to us at every funeral. And it's amazing to me how, how funerals make everyone a Christian. It's amazing to how we wink at overt sin, we wink at a disregard uh, of a rebellious spirit, and we gloss over a life that's completely devoid of connection with Jesus Christ. If only we knew the true significance of the holiness of God. If only we knew of his rejection of sin and his call for us to be holy as he is holy. If only we knew the terrible consequence of living our lives completely independent of God. Our casual view of sin and our sugarcoating of hell would terrify us. If only we knew of the holiness of God. So I wonder if that theme could be laid over the first chapter of, of 1 Peter. We've been studying this chapter for the last few weeks, and as Peter writes to the exiles who are living far away and facing difficult circumstances, it may be that he is thinking, and as I come to the end of chapter 1, I, I, I believe this is a, an accurate assessment. He might be thinking, if only they knew, if only they knew of God's working from eternity past on their behalf, if only they knew the power of the resurrection at work in them, if only they knew the great salvation that God has given to them, if only they knew the living hope that they have in Jesus Christ, if only they knew their future, and if only they knew the promises that they have today because of that living hope that we have in Christ. If only they knew. So last week we moved deeper into chapter 1 and, and we moved towards our response to these great truths. And Peter, if you remember last week, Peter in, verses, in, in verse 13 and 14 calls us to respond in obedience to Christ. 
He calls us to set our hope fully on the Lord Jesus Christ in all that he's done for us. So we've seen that this great salvation and new life in Christ calls us to set aside our old life. It calls us, when, when Peter tells us to walk away from our former ignorance and instead to walk in obedience to the truth and grace we have in Jesus Christ. So as we lean into our calling of obedience to Christ, we need to be aware of a caution that we easily fall into. And that is obedience for the sake of obedience. You see, if we don't have the right motivation for obedience, then it simply becomes following a set of rules, and we're really good at that. We conform to some standard in order to be accepted, to be approved, or to be admitted or loved into certain relationships. See, obedience for the sake of obedience makes us into modern-day Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, who thought that keeping God's law to the letter would somehow make them holy and acceptable to God. You see, obedience needs to come with the right motivation or, or it runs out of gas. It fails to meet our needs, and we wind up walking away entirely to another set of values. We choose other lifestyles because we're sick of trying to keep the rules, because we're doing it for obedience's sake and not for any other motive. How many of us have come from homes where rules are valued more than relationships? How many of us have chosen other directions of life, even harmful directions, for the sake of getting out from under oppressive rules and demanded obedience? You see, obedience for the sake of obedience can cause us to reject the very life that we seek. So Peter finishes his thought on obedience with our motivation for it, and it's an amazing truth. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'll start at verse 13. This is what we studied last week, and it moves us into, our, into what motivates us for holiness. Therefore, verse 13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But, and here we are today, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So be holy in all your conduct. You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's what Peter is reminding us of here in this passage. At first glance, Peter's idea of holiness being the standard doesn't sound like a good motivator. It doesn't sound like it to me. It's more of an impossible standard. It's yet another hurdle that we can't clear, another expectation that has a built-in failure to it. As I look to my own life, my own self, and my own failings in, in this idea of sin and being holy, there's no way I can do it. So how can this be a motivation to me? But if I'm, actu if I'm accurately moving in the direction of of Peter's thoughts in 1 Peter chapter 1. I believe he would say to us, if you only knew of the holiness of God, you would not only obey his leading, but you would embrace the life, you would embrace the truth, you would embrace the leading that he has for you. You see, the holiness of God needs to be our motivation for our faith, for our life, and for our obedience. And as I said last week, this concept of holiness is huge and is foundational. So, as a result, we'll, we'll likely take several smaller bites of this apple over the next weeks. 
Today we'll consider the standard of holiness, God himself, and the immensity of what that means for our motivation. So stay with me today as we dive deep into this. Make sure you have your Bibles open as we, as we dive deep into this subject. So first thing we need to understand is the concept of holiness. Now I'm going to guess that the term holiness is recognized more in the context of a theological dictionary or a Christian vocabulary, which we call Christianese. I'm guessing that the idea of holy, of, of, of holy in everyday language is a foreign concept compared to those of us in the church. Ironically, when we use the word holy outside of a faith context, it's usually an anti-holy meaning. That's what it means to be profane to connect unholy thoughts or words with the concept of holiness. It's where we get our word profanity. So even as Christians, I'm not sure we understand the depth of this concept of holiness. Even though we've integrated it into our language, we use it in our vocabulary, but do we really understand what holiness means and what it entails? Let me give you three aspects of this concept of holiness very quickly and we'll dive into a deeper understanding. First of all, holiness, the word holiness, has this idea of purity or moral perfection to it. And I often focus on this idea when I'm presenting the message of Christ, the gospel message. It reflects our own sinfulness, our own impurity, it, it, that, that impurity that causes us to be rejected in the presence of God's purity, God's perfection. His purity can't be in the same place as our impurity. I often use an illustration of two, two magnets that are opposing one another, and you, you can't put those magnets together to save your life. They just repel one another. So it is with God's purity and our impurity. So this is true, God's perfection, and we'll talk about that more in a moment, and his purity. This is truly an, an aspect of holiness, but it's not the essence of the meaning of holiness. Second idea of holiness is that of separation. Holiness means setting apart, something that's distinct. It means something has been consecrated to something. In Christ, we've been set apart from sin and set apart to a life with Christ, a life in Christ. Peter takes this idea farther in chapter 2 of 1 Peter when he says that we are, we are a holy nation in verse in verse 9 of chapter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In verse 10, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. See, you've been set apart for Christ. You've been set apart in Christ for his purposes, for his love, for his grace, for his holiness. That's what holiness means, to be separated, set apart. But there's a third aspect of, of holiness that I think is really important for us to grab a hold of. In his book, The Holiness of God, R.C. Sproul takes the definition one step further. And he uses the word transcendent or transcendence. In other words, godly, God is entirely distinct from us. He is his own creation. God is, God is in his own category. When I come to this concept, I like to use the term and some of you students will recognize this from a lesson we did a while back, the term holy other, holy with a W, holy other. God is entirely distinct from his creation, from you and I. He is not the same being. 
His holiness sets him apart from all of creation. He is transcendent. He is holy other. You see, the holiness of God can be summed up by, by his absolute perfection in all things. One mistake we often have is lumping holiness in with all of his other attributes, such as his wisdom, his, inf his, his infiniteness, his infinite knowledge, his power, his faithfulness, his goodness. We just we make a list of all of God's attributes, and, and holiness is just one of those attributes. But I, as, I, as, I, as I think about this, as I ponder this idea and read about it, holiness actually sums up all of those attributes. Holiness caps them all off. His, holy, his holiness makes all the other attributes perfect and full. In his wholeness, in his holiness, he is the fullness of everything. So I stop here and I ask myself, can you feel your mind stretching at this point? There are many examples of, Peter, of people who have encountered the holiness of God in Scripture. I think of Abraham. I think of Moses. I think of Isaiah. King David, Peter, Stephen in, in the book of Acts, John with his revelation, and the Apostle Paul as he was caught up into the third heaven in 2 Corinthians. They were all given a picture of some kind, of some kind of insight into the heavenly realm, into the holiness of God, some, some fashion of it. I'd like to look at a famous example this morning. I'd like to dive in as we get a picture of who God is and get an understanding of his holiness. It's a familiar passage as we look at the holiness of God. And you might have already guessed where I'm going, but it's Isaiah chapter 6. It's a well-known passage of, of a well-known prophet, the prophet Isaiah. And in this passage of Isaiah 6, Isaiah was transported into the very throne room of God. He saw God, at least some part of him, and Isaiah records the experience. I know you may be familiar with this passage, and I've preached from this passage on several occasions, but when I preach from it, I usually focus on the calling of Isaiah as he comes to the end of this revelation, and he says, here am I, Lord, send me. And that's been the focus of my preaching. But today I want to take this passage, look at it again from the aspect of God's holiness. And I want to get a picture. I want to lean into this idea, idea of holiness. So turn with me if you would. You'll need your Bibles out today. Isaiah chapter 6 with verse 1. In the year, let me read from verse 1. In, that, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, face and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Let me, let me just stop right there. The question for me as I begin is, who is Isaiah? Well, we already know that he's a prophet. He's, he's one of the major mountain peaks of all the prophets in the Old Testament. He's a man of God. He's a spokesperson for God. He's been appointed for life. Prophets, prophets don't have a, a calling or a job description or or they can't submit their resignation sometime. It's a calling for life. If God calls you to be a prophet, there is no refusing, there's no quitting, and there's, there's no retirement plan that goes with it. A prophet is called to difficult tasks and difficult messages that many people won't receive. Prophets tend to be received later after they've died, but during the time of their ministry tend to be rejected. 
Isaiah was a little bit different in the sense that he was, he was a prophet to kings and royalty. He wasn't like the other prophets. Isaiah served for 52 years, and he, in the course of those 52 years, he served under several kings. And the, and the passage says, in the year that King Uzziah died, who was King Uzziah? King Uzziah was a king that was pleasing to God. He was faithful to God. He did what was pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. Uzziah was beloved by the people. And despite a late life failure and judgment came to him because of it, his death left the people and Isaiah in a sense of despair, wondering what would be their future. So what's the situation? Again, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. You see, Isaiah has come into the, into the temple. He's come in to seek refuge. He's come in to be in the presence of the Lord. He's come into the temple to seek God's wisdom as to next steps. He's come in to the, to the temple to, to, to soothe his grieving heart. Isaiah, I'm guessing, had no idea what was awaiting him in the temple that day. As we read these first two verses, we realize that Isaiah encountered God in the temple. If you, if you look closely, it says, I saw the Lord. The Lord is a title for God. We would say Adonai. I think the, the proper translation into Hebrew is Adon. Adonai is a, a derivative of that word. It means that he is sovereign. It means that he is king. You see, Isaiah, Isaiah was grieving the loss of his king, and now he was meeting the king of the universe in the temple. And I want you to note the description of what he saw. Isaiah did not see God's face. Think back to the story of Moses with the burning bush. When God called Moses to lead his people out of, out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt. We go to chapter 33 of, of Exodus, and I, I encourage you to go there and read, the, read the, the story, the situation. Moses had asked God to show him his glory. He said, I don't want to go any further if if if, if you don't go with me, that he also said that, but he said, I want to see you. I want to, I want to see your glory as I'm going to lead your people. But God said, you're not allowed to see my face, so I will pass by you. But he only allowed him to see him from the, behind, from, from, from the rear. He was not allowed to see the front of him. He wasn't allowed to see the face of God. You see, neither Moses or Isaiah were allowed to see the full glory of God. In fact, in, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, God told Moses, no one can look on God and live. That's his holiness. Let's keep going. Get an idea of this holiness. The seraphim. What are the seraphim? Who are they? These are angelic beings. They're created for a heavenly role around the throne of God. This is their job. This is their life to serve God at his throne. You'll notice... You notice, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. I find it interesting to note here that the seraphim, these angel, these angelic beings, were, they had their face covered by two separate wings. It's interesting to me that, that even in the presence of God, even though they were designed to minister to God in the throne room, they still, as created beings, could not look on the face of God. And as we go on to read, it says that two of their wings covered their feet. If you go back to Exodus chapter 3, 
when, when Moses encountered God when he came to that burning bush, God told him to take his sandals off because that place where God was, that place that God had consecrated in his presence, was holy ground. You see, when, when Moses took his sandals off, it was his connection to the earth. When, when the angels cover their feet, it's because it covers their connection to the earth. Our feet come in contact with the ground. In other words, it's a reminder of our, if I can say this, our creatureliness. It reminds us that we are created beings. We are not God. We are not like him. We come into his presence as, as created beings. Our feet are connected to the earth. And so the angels, even though they are not human, they still need to cover their feet as a reminder of their creatureliness. In the presence of God, we are vividly reminded that we are creatures. That, that comes with it. We're not in the same category as a holy God. Let's keep reading verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts. Then, verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. That is Isaiah's calling. Let's go back to verse 3. There's a proclamation here. The, the angels proclaim, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When something is spoken three times like this, it is emphasizing something. In this case, it is emphasizing holy, holy, holy. God is holy. If anybody in the Hebrew language is listening, they'd say, I'd better pay attention here. Holy is an issue. Can't say this strong enough. God is holy. And then we come to the word, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. I want you to catch something here. In verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Lord, in this case, is all capital letters. Back in verse, back in verse 1, the word Lord is in small caps. That means, in, in small caps, it means Adonai. It means he is sovereign, he is king, he's ruler over all things. In this case, in this case, the word Lord in all, in all caps means it's the holy name of God. In verse 1, it's a title for God. In this verse, it's the name of God. It's even shortened up in the Hebrew language because it's an unspeakable name. It is Yahweh. The unspeakable name, the highest name, the holy name of God. He is so high and lifted up that you can't even say his name. He's the commander of the armies of heaven. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole of creation reflects his glory. And he is holy, holy, holy. 
He's perfect in his fullness. He's perfect in his wisdom. He's, he's almighty in his sovereignty and his power. He's worthy of all the praise of creation. Can you say it with me? He is, say it with me, holy, holy, holy. And then I can't help but notice the temple itself. You see, when the angel cried out and proclaimed, holy is the Lord, you'll notice the foundations of the thresholds shook and the whole house was filled with smoke. I want you to get this. When the name of the Lord was proclaimed, when he is proclaimed as holy, even the inanimate objects in the temple shook. The threshold shook. The place filled with smoke. You get the idea? God is holy other. God is holy. Even inanimate objects tremble at his voice. And then there's Isaiah. Verse 5, and I said, woe is me. Now, being a prophet of God, Isaiah, we, could, we would think that Isaiah just simply stood there. And being a prophet, the, the mighty one of God, he would just take in this whole scene, that, that he would enjoy this bird's eye view of God. But no, that's not what happens. So we read verse 5, he says, woe is me. Another word that we don't use, woe. What does it mean? It means cursed am I. I would remind you, it's one thing for a prophet to pronounce curses on others, to pronounce judgments on other people. But here he's pronouncing judgment on who? Who is he pronouncing a curse on? Himself, the great prophet. In the presence of God, his holiness, God's holiness, exposes our sin like an x-ray reveals a broken bone. And I want you to look at his conclusion in my English Standard Version. It says, woe is me, for I am lost. Now, some, some translations say it this way, I am undone. And frankly, as I look at this, that's a better translation. In God's presence, Isaiah was fully exposed. He was spiritually exposed. The great prophet was left naked before God spiritually. Worse yet, and get this, worse yet, Isaiah was coming apart. He was undone. In the movie, a long time ago, Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's a scene in which the Nazis have found the Ark of the Covenant, the, the pursuit of the entire movie, found the Ark of the Covenant, and they are gathered in this place out in the wilderness, and they're ready to open up the Ark of the Covenant to see what is in it. And if you remember the scene, as they slide the lid off of the Ark of the Covenant, there's all kinds of spiritual beings that, that come flying out of the Ark of the Covenant, as only Hollywood could make it. It's a scene of unspeakable beauty, and as, you, as they pan around the, the, uh, the amphitheater where this takes place, everybody's ooing and eyeing over the splendor and the beauty of all these beings that have come out of the, the Ark of the Covenant. But if you remember what happens next, it turns to absolute horror. Then the judgment of holiness comes. In the movie, those around the Ark physically come apart. It's gruesome and it's violent. They literally melt in the presence of the ark. You see, Isaiah doesn't come undone physically in this passage. 
That's not the emphasis here like it is for Hollywood. But he is. He is imploding spiritually. In today's language, when someone hears a powerful song, if they, if they hear a, a message from a movie or something like that, they read a book or, or, they, or they hear a great sermon, what's the response to, in today's language? I don't use it myself, but I hear it often. It's, it goes like this. When I heard it, I was what? Wrecked. I was wrecked. I would submit to you that Isaiah's language is much more powerful. Isaiah was coming undone. And then he goes on to say that he's a man of unclean lips, and he comes from a people of unclean lips. And I wonder, what, what comes to mind when your sin is exposed? When, when God's holiness comes on you like this and, and you realize that you're a sinful person, a sinner, what, what does that mean? Where does your mind go? We'll turn to bad habits. We'll turn to bad decisions, memories of, of bad actions that we've taken. We'll, we'll go back to memories of the way we've treated others, possibly. Maybe something like greed or swearing will pop up in our, in our minds as we think about holiness. Smoking. Sin conjures up a whole multitude of things. There's a long list of sin, the, the consequences of sin, the, the symptoms of sin. But Isaiah focused on his mouth. Woe is me, I'm an, a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. Why? Why did he focus on his mouth? Jesus tells us. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but it's what comes out of the mouth, what proceeds from the heart, and that's what defiles a person. You see, what comes out of your mouth is what's going on in your heart. Heart of Isaiah in the presence of God was fully exposed. His words reflected his heart and his sinfulness. And when I look back at my own life, the most guilt-producing moments are always connected with something that I have said out loud. How many of us have, have learned to check the recipients of an email lest we should accidentally send it to somebody we don't intend it to? So they don't, because we don't want them to read what's written in it. You see, the words that come out of our mouth betray what's in our heart. I have an acquaintance on Facebook who is a, a, a pastor, and on a regular basis, this grieves my heart, but on a regular basis, he goes off on rants and, and he's quite belittling of others, quite uh, cutting of others, especially fellow Christians. And recently, in a, in a post that I read of his, he, it was a long post, and he just, he just came out with it all. He made a long list of accusations against Christians in the church. His remarks are quite offensive to me, but as I read those, those cutting words, those offensive words, I, I realize that, that those words betray a heart that is marked by anger. It saddens me because it's a heart that's marked by bitterness. And I'm going to even say hate. In his last rant, I was left wondering what God, our holy God, was thinking as this pastor trashed the beautiful bride of Christ. We don't understand God's holiness. For Isaiah, 
The mouth betrayed the utter sinfulness of his heart. He was fully exposed. He was undone. In the presence of a holy God, Isaiah was left with nothing to defend himself. You'll notice that there were no excuses that came out of his mouth. There was no plea of defense. He was laid bare at the very presence of God. He was undone. And I come to our life application. And the first thing that comes to my mind is, if we only knew. If we only knew. See, if we go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter was seeking to encourage the exiles in their faith. He was also seeking to help them live out their faith as they worked out the living hope of the gospel message. How do you walk in Christ in the midst of persecution, difficult circumstances? Peter wanted to send a word of encouragement to them. As he did so, as he went through what, what Megan read earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1, he called them to obedience and holiness. And as he did that, as he called them to obedience and holiness, he was diverting their attention away from the world, away from the temptations of the world, away from their circumstances, away from their hardships, away from their worries, and he was placing their focus squarely on the holy God that Isaiah encountered. You see, their motivation for walking out their faith, their motivation for every decision, every attitude, every word that comes out of their mouth was to be God and was to be His holiness. So let me, just, let me just give some random thoughts as we try to wrap this all up in a package this morning. First of all, brothers and sisters, Peter calls us to be holy. He says, he, he quotes scripture, be holy as I am holy. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 and 24, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through, net, through deceitful desires and put on the new self created after the likeness of God, listen to this, in true righteousness and holiness. Not only did Peter write about it, not only did Paul write about it, but the entire book of Leviticus is dedicated to the holiness of God and what it means to be his holy people. So we are called to be holy. But as you can guess, this doesn't come to us naturally. This, this, is a, this is, again, a work of God. You see, we need an intermediary. We learned that from Isaiah. We need someone who, who can take away our sin. Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. We need someone to make us worthy to be in the presence of the Lord. We cannot stand there ourselves. For, an, for, for Isaiah... In the account in Isaiah chapter 6, an angel came with a hot coal, touched his lips, and purified him from his sin. Only then, only when God took action, only when God brought a redeemer, only when God brought a method for, for cleansing of his sin, could he stand in the presence of God. And only then could he go out as a servant of God, as a prophet of God. But for us, in the fullness of Scripture, in the fullness of the New Testament, for us, we have an intermediary. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the very Son of God. And that's the gospel. Jesus Christ paid the price for our sin. He made us worthy in all of our unworthiness to stand in the presence of a holy God. We need an intermediary. 
The other thing that I take away from, from this idea, especially with Isaiah, is that we will see God face to face. Now I want you to catch this. It won't be like Moses in Exodus 33. It won't be like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when they only got to see the backside of God. And I remind you, no man can see God and live. That's what God told Moses. But 1 John 3, verse 2 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We will see God face to face because in Christ Jesus, we will be found worthy because of Christ's, Christ's merit, not our own. But when I think about that, when I think about me standing in the presence of God, I, I think it, 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 should, it, it should make me seek his pleasure. It should, it should drive me, it should motivate me to work out his holiness in my life. I have nothing in myself that is holy, but he can make me holy. Peter is calling the, the brothers and sisters, the believers, to be holy as he is holy, to work it out. And we'll talk more about that in the coming Sundays. But on the flip side of this, on the, on the fact that we'll see God face to face, there's a flip side to this as well. And that is, I think there's such a thing as a healthy fear and trembling associated with, with holiness. When I look at the political scene, when I look at our culture, when I look at uh, people, and sometimes it's myself, who have a complete disregard for God, when I see people who are, who are willing to lie, who are willing to do whatever it takes to get ahead, etc., etc., when I see people who kind of do this to God and say, I don't need you today, I fear they don't know what it means that they will be held accountable. And that one day they will stand before this holy God with their lives stripped bare, naked, and without defense before him. We will see God face to face. And so as a result of that, another aspect of this conversation is that we can't wink at sin. You see, some sin certainly has greater consequences. But in, in the face of a holy God, in the presence of a holy God, sin is sin. We justify ourselves. We carry on in our sin. We believe our sin is not bad compared to others. We don't have the strength to fight against it, so we just leave it be. We can't overcome it, so therefore I'll just, I'll just wallow in my sin. And so you see, we wink at sin. But if sin doesn't disgust us, if sin doesn't cause us to run from it, then brothers and sisters, I don't think we have a correct view of God. You see, in the presence of God, all of our excuses will come undone in light of his holiness. And along with that, we can't come to him on our own terms. I'm, do I have to explain this? So when, are you thinking you're going to negotiate with God when you stand before him? You, 
Are you trying to say that God will have to answer for your circumstances? I go back to Isaiah chapter 6. The great prophet Isaiah, if you remember right, he had no words. He had no questions. He had no comments. He had no complaints in the presence of God's holiness. And let me ask you this. You're going to shake your fist at God in that moment? I don't think so. If only we knew the holiness of God. And then we can't assume our own goodness. Scripture is very clear. We have all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can stand in the presence of a holy God. And Isaiah illustrates that for us. I mean, if he can't stand in God's presence, then I, for sure I can't stand in the presence of God. And I'm pretty confident that you can't stand in God's presence either. See, if you're counting on getting into heaven because you're a good person, I want you to look at Isaiah. He was, if I can say this, gooder than good. But for Isaiah, his sin and every single aspect of it the big cracks in his life, the little cracks, the hairline cracks, every, every, every aspect of his sin was exposed. It was laid bare. You see, in that moment, when you stand before a holy God, you will have nothing to offer God. Nothing. You will be undone. You won't even be able to say the words but I've been a good person. You see, our concept of God is not accurate unless we have come undone. Unless we have realized our own profanity, our own unholiness before a holy God. And so as I close this morning, I realize Isaiah went into the temple having lost his good friend Uzziah, who was a king, who was sovereign over the nation. And he met God in the temple, who was king over all of creation. He is sovereign over all creation. He's Adonai. For Isaiah, it was a crisis of sovereignty. Who rules? Who is going to take the lead? For us, it's the, same, it's the same crisis of sovereignty. In the New Testament, when Jesus is called Lord, it's a reference to his divine sovereignty. When he's called Lord of Lords, it means that he is supreme over all things. We go back to the calling given to us by Peter, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. It begs the question this morning, who is Lord of your life? If you have never, ever, if you've never acknowledged your sin, if you've never come to the place where you realize that you need a Savior, now is the time. And I, I can't emphasize to you enough that I believe the time is short the circumstances in our world are all coming together and God has told us of these things. If we study God's word, we can realize that the days are short. The end of the age is drawing near. 
We cannot afford to wait another day. Soon, soon you will stand as Isaiah did in the presence of a holy God. And I, I, I urge you, I, I, I urge you, brothers and sisters, take that step of faith to align your life today with God. It's a, it's a simple prayer. Lord, I recognize my sin. I recognize that you are my intermediary, that you are my, you are, you are my Savior. I accept your sacrifice on the cross to pay for my sins, and I receive your new life. It's that easy. It's that, it's that kind of a prayer that ushers us into the new life that God has for us through Jesus Christ. I urge you to take that step today and tell somebody about it. Send a note to the church here and tell us about it. We would love to hear if you've made that decision. I urge you, call on the name of Jesus. And if you are a follower of Christ, but if you have been reluctant to walk away from a certain sin in your life, if you've, if you've been reluctant, if you've, have, if you've come up with a whole list of excuses as to why you can't put that away, you can't put off the old self, that, that ignorance that Peter talked about in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, that, that ignorance that he told us to, to lay off, to put aside. It's time. I've given you a picture, a picture of Isaiah in the temple, a picture of God's holiness. If you only knew the holiness of God, you would run from that sin. Today's the day. Give it up. Heed the call of Peter. Heed the example of Isaiah. Run. Be holy in all your conduct. Repent. Turn to the Lord. Renounce sin. Walk away. Turn to the Lord for forgiveness and new life. Peter says it, and I'll say it again. Be holy, for he is holy. Lord Jesus, as we look at your holiness, as we consider the depths of your holiness, and it's just, a, it's just a toe in the water today, there's so much more for us to understand, so much more for us to understand how we walk this out in our life. But today, Lord Jesus, we look to you and we see you high and lifted up on the throne, seated at the right hand of the Father, in all of your glory, in all of your holiness. I pray, Lord Jesus, that, that we would be drawn to you, that we would accept your offer to forgive us our sins and to bring us into your holy presence. Lord, we recognize you as sovereign Lord in our world and in our life today. May it be so. May it be so. In the name of Jesus, we commit, commit ourselves. Amen.